Hello, and welcome to the Bedrosian Center's Book Club Podcast, an audio book club where we read and discuss a book every month, sometimes two. We read new and classic works, fiction and non, through a lens of governance to really get at what it means to participate in our communities today. My name is Aubrey Hicks, and I am the Executive Director of the Bedrosian Center. Before I tell you about what we're going to read today, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about what is coming up. Um, For April, May, we read two books, the one we're discussing today, The Nature of Desert Nature, and All We Can Save, edited by Ayana Elizabeth Johnson and Katherine K. Wilkinson. So the first episode will be The Nature of Desert Nature, and then we'll be recording All We Can Save in a few weeks. And for June, we are reading Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown. And we're going to be doing a live episode of that, a live recording on Tuesday, January 22nd at 5 p.m. Pacific. So please join us if you can. We've got a great group of women to be talking about that book. And then in July, we've got The Shadow of the Wind, a good classic novel. And I think, um, Caroline, you're joining us for that too, right? Yes. And uh, we're also going to be reading The Brutish Museums by Dan Hicks. So um, we're just going to talk about collections in that month. So for today, I think we're going to talk about participation in different kinds of communities. You know, right now during the pandemic, it feels like some of these connections are dissolving. And yet there have been so many acts of collective uh, mutual aid and, and everything this year. So I think it's suitable that we're going to be discussing this book about different kinds of community, different kind of ecology. Um, this is a book, uh, which is a collection of essays edited by Gary Paul Nabin. And um, he asks the writers in the book to think about, to ponder the nature of desert nature and what that place might hold in their minds or hearts. So joining me today are Caroline Bala. Caroline, can you tell our listeners who you are? Yes. Hi, I'm Caroline Bala, and I'm the Managing Director of the Price Center for Social Innovation here at USC. I have just reached uh, five years in this role, and prior to that, I worked in development at USC in the Price School of Public Policy for four years in this role and five years in that. I was going to say, wow, time flies. Time flies. <laughs> um, and doing great work there. Um, Stacy Patterson, tell our listeners who you are. Hi. Uh, yes, I'm so uh, so glad to be here uh, today, especially for, uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, I'm Stacy Patterson, and I, too, work at USC. I'm a program manager uh, for one of the academic divisions, uh, the Division of Media, Arts, and Practice, or MAP. Or map in the School of Cinematic Arts. Um, MEP. Uh, that got me right to thinking about uh, Francisco Cantu's uh, essay. Um, so before we start, I have two questions. Uh, what drew you to saying yes to talk to, to reading this book and talking about it? And do you think the essays actually get at the nature of desert nature? That's a big question, but we can use, it could be a yes or no, and then we can jump off from there. So I wanted to read this book because I am fascinated, like many people, by the desert. Um, I have um, spent some time in the desert, and I, you know, we live in a desert in Los Angeles, right? Although we have transformed our desert. Um, So I was fascinated by this book because I wanted to see where it was going to go. Um, 
I normally don't read books by male authors, and I also normally don't read uh, nonfiction. And so I thought it was a nice stretch for me, and I can talk about how I was not surprised by a lot of the things that I did like about this book. Um, so um, I will stop there, and then we can talk. Maybe I can talk about the next one after Stacy's as well. What drew you to the book, Stacy? Uh, well, um, and the language is used a little bit in some of the essays. I consider myself a desert rat. Um, I, my family moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico when I was 12. So again, much like uh, I didn't know this um, when, I, uh, when I saw the title, but um, it's, it's talked about in the uh, first essay of the book, this notion that we so many of us and historically our definitions of what the desert is, our understanding of the nature of that comes from and through people who come from somewhere else. And, um, and in a way that is very much my story. I, I moved there from, you know, the East coast from Northern Virginia where it rained a lot. It was super green. And so I was really interested in, in reading about and exploring the nature of desert nature and seeing how it meshed or didn't or challenged or didn't my my notions of what it is to be from the desert. Mm-hmm. So is Albuquerque actually in the desert or is it in the Badlands? Um, well, we it's not Badlands either, um, necessarily. I mean, partly because I have family from South Dakota, so we have a ba- an actual Badlands there. Uh, now, you know, it's interesting. I was saying to my husband that I grew up saying I'm from the high desert, um, which is a colloquialism. It isn't really a thing. Um, you know, Albuquerque is over a mile high. It's right there at the tail end of the Rockies. So you have really a semi-arid, cold winter. Um, but a, an arm, you could say, or a little branch tendril of the Chihuahuan Desert actually meanders its way up along kind of adjacent to the Rio Grande and actually is right there, you know, kind of ends right there in Albuquerque. So you don't have to go very far to both be in mountains, be something more like a, you know, Colorado plateau, and you don't go very far before you're, you know, in in desert-like climate. Although, again, we don't have swirl, we don't have I, I spend so much of my time, either people are like, oh, I drove through there once. That's often what people say about my adopted hometown. Or they presume I'm from Arizona and I know something about Swaro. And I'm like, no, we we don't have that where I'm, I'm from. I have a lot of love for that. But um, so, yes, uh, no, I am not technically from, from the desert. And yet I, I am. So uh, we're mostly from the East Coast, right? Carolyn, you were in New York for a while. Um, yes, but I grew up in Oxnard, California, which is on the ocean. So my first right. I always forget because I think of you as a New Yorker. I don't know why. <laughs> I was there for close to a decade and in the Bay Area for a while, too. But When I asked the question about the nature of desert nature, I think one of the things that I was a little bit surprised with uh, was that it really focuses on the Sonoran Desert and that most of the people have, like, are part of some collective. Like, they all sort of know each other. You know, because what you were talking about, Stacy, the high desert, you know, the, the Grand Basin goes up through Oregon and that also 
when you live, when you're there, like in Bend, it's like high desert, but that's also a colloquialism. It's also, you know, for different parts of the Mojave, which is just elevation, you know, and you get that different kind of colder winter. You get a little bit of snow in the, in the winter and, but it is still, you know, considered part of the desert. Um, and so I found it interesting that they didn't really, none of them really went into the different kinds of ecologies of different deserts. You know, there's so many different, even the Sonoran, they went into that a little bit of how it changes as you, as you go north or as you drive south. But um, it felt to me like they didn't really get to the nature of desert nature, uh, the sort of meaning of you know, like the heart of deserts, but something specifically with the Sonoran Desert. Is that just me or did you guys feel the same thing? Uh, I agree with you. I think that there were a few moments where I learned something about the desert. Um, and those were, you know, it was mostly about um, some of the animals and um, plants that they encountered there. And those things were um, interesting. And I noticed them when I was learning about them. Um, but I really think this book was more about people and how they experience the desert and very specifically like their own individual journey and how the desert affected them. Right. And so it wasn't really, but there's a couple of places where it was really about the desert, but for the most part, it was about some guy who was breaking up with his wife and then left <laughs> in the desert. Right. Like how many times do we read that? I know. I was surprised at how many times uh, men were like, my marriage was breaking up at that point. And then, yeah. Myself in the desert. I was like, well, how did the desert find you? Like, I want to know about the desert, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know, Stacey, did you find, did you feel that way? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you alluded to it as well. I, I found myself at a certain point going back to the, at the tail end of the book, there are uh, brief bi uh, biographies on the various contributors. And I was like, okay, there's one. I was literally counting the women. Counted the women. Yeah. And I was like, well, there's not very many. Um, and I found myself uh, more deeply attracted and engaged with those essays mm -hmm. than, than some of the others. I'm so glad that you guys said the same thing. Um, yeah, I went through, you know, uh, I think I was... Um, by the fourth one, I was like, hmm, we've seen two women, and then there's only there's only four essays out of the, the total essays that are by women. And I found it really interesting that um, there was this theme of, like, totally unexpected from the description, from the from everything, this sort of Christian mysticism that I did not really expect. So, you know, I think... Caroline, you're so right. It's about people, but it's about very specific kinds of people too. You know, you know, he starts off with, he sections the book into six different sections. And the first section uh, is native ways of envisioning deserts. And in some ways, those were some of the better chapters. And in some ways I was like, this is, I didn't feel like a super native voice because I also felt there was this sort of Christian mysticism sort of going through those stories as well. I don't know. Stacey, you're, you look like you're pondering something. The last bit, I, I'm just uh, wrapping my brain around it. I can't say that I disagree um, because I do think that, uh, again, 
I think to kind of build on what you're saying, Aubrey, I think that the overall, the book lacks an indigenous voice. Um, and there definitely is. And I, I just hadn't quite thought about it the way you put it. Um, so yeah, I agree. Because I think that all of the voices are colored and channeled through, again, this sense of being planted or replanted or discovering the desert. And there are only, I only found a couple places where, one in particular, where it was acknowledged that people had been there for millennia, <laughs> you know, as caretakers and humans, uh, you know, in this place. And I really felt that overall that was missing. Uh, if we really want to understand the desert, and I don't know that an indigenous voice wants us to see and know the desert quite the same way. That's, you know, that that could be a question to be asked as well. But the fact that it was predominantly written from a male point of view, from what appeared to be a Midwestern or Eastern kind of, we come from green places and we discovered ourselves in this dry, arid place. I'm like, yeah, of course. You've been in the desert. That happens. <laughs> that can happen. So, yeah. I, I, I think I'm hopefully adding to what you're saying and agreeing. Yeah, the sense that um, that it was not really, even about the people discovering the desert, but um, traveling outside of whatever they grew up with in order to, one, I think one of the writers says, hollow myself out, you know, which to me is the opposite of the desert. You know, um, I don't I don't see the desert as a, a hollowing. Yeah, I don't know. It's just um, I was really sh sort of thinking about how that even in some of the essays that are particularly about plants, you know, the ecologists, I felt like they were almost more about the human body and seeing the desert through the human body and not really getting at the complexity of the nature that's in desert, which also includes humans <laughs> and has for a long time. I just found it really striking. So if you were to come out of this book, you wouldn't be able to answer what is the nature of desert nature, or would you? I could say that, that um, I could say for, for sure that many folks are surprised by uh <laughs> The desert. Um, I could say that um, the desert is a complex place where there are a lot of living things, mm -hmm. contradiction to the idea that it's dead, right? I mean, that I think was a pretty clear theme throughout, you know, people were surprised by the level of, you know, how much was living in the desert, right? Um, so I think I could say that with certainty. And then I think, yeah, so I, I, I think I could say that. I think I could say a little bit about the plants in the desert, a little bit, not a lot. I could talk a little bit about some of the animals, but not a lot. So yeah, that's what I could say, I think. Uh, did it make you homesick, Stacey? Well, I, I will admit I'm terribly homesick to begin with. I haven't been home, um, you know, it, since since this lockdown, so over a year. Um, and there is, uh, uh, it's actually a quote in the book, but it's quoting an indigenous writer <laughs> who, who isn't one of the essayists talking of, you know, kind of about place. And, and that really struck me as, yeah, it's something that really sort of awakened the fact that I 
often after living for several decades in Los Angeles and and loving it here, when I get homesick, I, I my my family even knows this about me. I, I don't get homesick for them. I get homesick for this physical space. There is something about who I became or as I was growing up that just is attached to you know the way the sun sets on the on you know and reflects against the mountain and and you know yeah the the way the sky looks and how you know the the storms during that season sort of move their way in and over and beyond and all of those things so um so yeah and i and i would say that yeah it's interesting that we're talking about you know really we we kind of got to know these humans in a way and and i was like what did we call, you know, I was, I was actually looking up some of the plants because I was like, hmm, some of that language isn't quite what I used growing up. And I found this really thought on video of somebody dealing with a, um, a chola cha- a cactus. And, you know, they, they're, they, like, the question is always like, do, do those, uh, does that ca- cactus actually jump? Because if you come near it, it breaks off pieces of itself and it sort of attaches itself to your clothes or your person. Um, and if you try to like pull it off, it will like attach to your finger or it'll kind of leap and appear to attach to another part of you. Um, and so there's this video of a person kind of talking through what that, you know, what that was like. And I thought, why is that not in any of these essays? <laughs> I mean, that is so, so much a part of an experience, a desert experience. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yes, I'm homesick and yes, all of these things. Um, I, there are parts of the book that I really liked. And, and I think it comes from the bias of like, oh, yeah, that's that might be a bit of how I would describe how I felt the first time moving there. Um, how I feel sometimes about certain places, my experience of myself in those places. But I don't know that anyone else would necessarily have that experience if they weren't coming from, you know, the experience I already have. Yeah. I mean, you know, coming from the East Coast, the the one that I, um, who was it? Alison Hawthorne Deming in her essay, Desert City Ocean Home. She's talking about the two places that she lives. But I think the thing that I identified with is how she, uh, when she travels to the desert, she she plants something to learn about and sort of um and that was really one of the the times that I felt like this is a person who has had her hands in the sand in the desert in the clay in the you know and there's a lot of talk about sensuality of the desert the smells um the sounds um the shock that things are alive there wasn't very much actual interaction between the people in the desert and that particular, the, the way she's talking about planting and that really resonated with me because that's also how I am learning how to live in this, in this land um, by planting plants that I know nothing about. And most of the time just praying that they live <laughs> um, because, you know, here in LA, we're in this sort of weird zone where we're Mediterranean on the edge of the of the desert but we're also you know a bit chaparral and it's just this conglomeration this sort of edginess we're um just on the edges of all the different things so that was the one that that resonated with me but yeah I I also felt like um what do I want to say 
Um, so you, Stacey, you talked about the, the quote about um, home isn't people or things, that it's the place. And I don't know. Um, as someone who moved around a lot, like I think of the desert as, as my home, but I would love to live in New Mexico, <laughs> still the desert. So I don't know. Nature of home. I think there was a lot in here that was just not about deserts <laughs> or ecology. Even there wasn't a lot about sustainability either, which surprised me. Yeah. I, the quote is from Viola F. Cordova on page 162 of the, the version that I have. Um, when it says, um, essentially the question that is being posed is what does it mean to live in a desert and to call it home? And the particular essayist quotes the Cordovans and her quotation is, it is the place, the look of the early morning, the smell of the juniper, the particular expected temperature for the kind of day it is for the time of year it is, the mountains being in the right place. I will say, you know, somebody who comes from a place where the mountains are in the east, <laughs> I got here and I thought I am out of sorts with myself. The place, the right place for the mountains to be is not the hills to the north. They're supposed to be in the east. And it's quite a, a jostling thing. Mm. That's funny. That's interesting. Sunsets look totally different. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So many things. I don't know that um, if I were to go down the path of like, okay, I'm, I think I'm being asked to understand the desert through these various writers. I also feel like I didn't get as much, dare I say, vulnerability. I didn't really get to know them as well as I could have either. If that was the lens I was supposed to be looking through, then I, I also, you know, I wanted, I wanted more. Yeah, and I have to say, I don't know if this is the right place to sort of toss this in here, but I was really surprised that out of all of this, there wasn't one even hint or discussion about La Llorona. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't know anyone who grows up around Arroyos who doesn't know that story. And I thought, oh, this this book, I'm hungry for a version of this story as it pertains to our exploration of the nature of desert nature and especially if we're talking about humans more than we seem to be talking about the actual ecology yeah um did you want to respond directly to that aubrey no i was just going to shift one one direction pulling off something you said stacy around not really getting to know anyone very well um i do want to come back to the indigenous um topic we talked about in the beginning. Um, I feel like the one person that we got to know somewhat well was the border agent in the chapter about the maps. And so in my work, we do a lot with maps, right? It's like a real, it's like a, you know, an everyday part of um, public policy and um, urban planning and that sort of thing. And his chapter called Clearly Marked Ghosts, which talks about um, becoming a border patrol agent and the maps that they share with people to try to warn them not to cross the desert. Um, and each dot on the map is someone who died in the desert and how he is trying to, um, or there's a, now a, a program or a process to try to like name the folks who have died. Um, I thought that was, I felt like we did get to know his, him a little bit and his journey and what he cared about. And in a way that it wasn't about his spiritual awakening, it was about like, him trying to understand the desert as a place where all of these people see it through different lenses, right? Uh, you know, some as a home, some as a journey, as a place of their journey. 
um, some as their final resting place um, and, and trying to use a map to describe that and share it with people. I thought that was, I thought that was um, one of the better parts of the book. I'm not sure how you guys felt about that chapter. Um, so we read uh, for the book club, um, I think two years ago now, um, a book that uh, Francisco Cantu writes uh, after that, which is furthering that essay. Um, it's called The Line Becomes a River. And it's, it's beautiful. Um, but I think you're right. And the interesting thing, too, is that of all the places that there are, there are illustrations, um, there's really only two chapters that have illustrations. One is a series of photos that you see before you see the essay, which I thought was a little bit... Anyway, but the maps, you know, I think are really important and that, you know, we're, we come into this, you know, this exploration of specifically, you know, Arizona and the, um, and there are no maps. Yeah. <laughs> There's no maps. <laughs> There's no, you know, you're talking about place and, and, you know, we don't encounter a map until one of the very last sections. I just, yeah, the maps, I think, help you tell that story. And when you're talking about place, how do you not do maps? But yeah, I love that um, that particular essay is really poignant. It also brings up something that I wanted to talk about. You know, the essays are split into six sort of sections. Um, the first being native ways of envisioning deserts, growing up deserted, desert contemplatives, desert as atlazan, atlazan, I can't say it right now because of course I'm being recorded, so, and divided <laughs> turf. Deserts seen from other places, deserts as art, ecology nexus. So for me, I thought the those arbitrary uh, sections didn't really work, particularly when we're talking about this area of the country. I wanted Indigenous voices throughout. Um, and there are some, there, there's a lot of quotes, but it doesn't, it, it feels like we're experiencing Indigenous voices through white people. So I really found that off-putting. The art part, uh, you know, should have been sort of throughout. Yeah. And I felt like they were just arbitrary and not necessary. And also that I would have done a completely different way of doing it. I would have wanted those beginning stories. I mean, the story Hino, um, which is, you know, told from like the desert's perspective. Like that should have been, I feel like at the end, it's a, I mean, it could have been right at the beginning or right at the end, but it's so, it takes what there are in some of the other essays and sort of makes it a little bit of a whole. And it's art, ecology. Yeah, and I, I would have wanted to talk about murals a little bit earlier. I would have wanted to put the, the essay first and the, the photos of the murals after. It just felt like it was a bit of a mess in terms of structure. I could be being picky, but um, part of it also was that, you know, the two women, there were four women authors, two of them are in the first section. And then there's a lot of surprise. So I'm going to keep coming back to this Christian mysticism, which just really surprised me because it feels very old fashioned. Yeah, no, I agree. I, the, the split of the chapters didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I don't think you're being picky. Um, I think that the I expected there to be poems and sonnets in between as a way to sort of guide you through um, the book. I thought, I agree with you on that. I thought Hino was the best part of the book. I mean, I think that should have been first. 
And last. I mean, that was the last. Yes, exactly. It's the only time the desert got to speak for itself, right? Like it was so. um, Yeah, there's not even photos of the desert. There are photos of murals of the desert. Right. And the photo. Yeah, no, I know. Murals of people translating the desert. Okay, that's not true. There, there are photos. There's like two photos <laughs> in the chapter with the um, about the border. Patrol. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's about where the people die. Yeah, it was bananas. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I, the Christian mysticism thing. I noticed that too because I didn't know about it very much. So I, I learned about that in this book. Um, and now I'm going to think a little bit about whether or not the indigenous stories they included also had that overtone. Maybe they did, but I would have to think about that a little bit. I, I hadn't noticed that. It just struck me as, um, you know, I honestly didn't look these people up besides their bios here, and there's not a lot about age. But, it, you know, there's part of me that is like, these are a lot of men that are getting up in age. I know that sounds ageist, but, you know, it does feel like, it doesn't feel contemporary. I mean, the book is beautiful and very, this, like, it has a look. The title is beautiful, um, which is, you know, what drew me to it. I love deserts and it just, but there's this feeling of like the 50s, 60s in much of the the writing. And part of that, I think, is is probably how they were asked to contribute because so much of it is like, you know, I came to the desert, my my wife left me, everything died, and then I realized that everything wasn't dead sort of thing. Pretty much exactly spot on. Yeah, it wasn't there even, it's pretty, let me see if I can quickly find it. I was a little, I was also taken aback. It was on page what, page 40, and there's this quote, and it says, good science, like good art and good prayer, often humbles us and makes us wonder how little we actually know. And I was like, I'm only on page 40. And boy, did I not expect that. (laughs) I didn't expect science and art and good prayer to all be in one sentence. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And I, and I think that um, I too, I love the feel of the book. Um, The image on the front cover is taken from one of the murals that's in, in the book for people who are listening. Um, I love the, feel of the pages. And I also agree with you. There's sort of a feeling of um, kind of a a 60s, like, you know, kind of hippie experience uh, in there for for maybe many of our our writers, either coming away from it or coming back to it or but it does feel like it's it's there. And, um, and yet, or and, uh, I would say too, that we don't often we don't often, even now, take the opportunity to talk about the fact that so many people actually benefit from the fact that they're visiting a place that was actually settled and colonized by Europeans, and how much of that resonates in in these essays. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you know, yes, some of the um, even the the indigenous aspects of some of the storytelling definitely are post-Catholicism. So you you have that as well, this sort of experience of people, you know, there's there's talk about, you know, Antony and there's talk about Augustine and I'm like, holy cow. <laughs> We're talking about Catholic Christian mystics in the United States Southwest. Yeah. 
And we don't really address it at all. I mean, we just, it, it, is part of you know what Gary's folks are are thinking of as desert nature. I think that's super helpful to 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 notice it and name it, right? Like the um, this is like one specific type of desert nature from one specific perspective and one per- and one specific desert, right? So I mean that's what you started this whole thing with, and it really is a, just a piece of the desert, and it really is just a handful of folks' experience with that desert, and they're kind of making a claim that that is the desert, right? That is in some ways the definition of it or the nature of it. And I think that's probably uh, short-sighted. Yeah, I guess short-sighted. That, that is how I feel about this book. I, I think I expected more. I mean, I expected more. And then, you know, very early on, just in the first chapter, I had a lot of trouble reading because, you know, he would mention something that was, you know, really important about desert, you know, life in the desert, living things in the desert. And then he would pass it by. And so I would want to go and look up the plants or I would want to go and, you know, so a lot of what I did in between is go out to my garden, you know, because it was like, I'm not getting what I think I should be getting from this book. I sort of wonder if if they had just changed the title because I, I think you're right, Caroline. I mean, it is this very specific sort of very personalized view of what it means to be in a desert. Yeah. I uh, took it to Palm Springs to read it because I haven't, I've only been to Palm Springs once. Yeah. And so I was born in Palm Springs and I told my sister, I was reading this book um, and she said, did they mention the wind? Right. So when we were in Palm Springs, it was the, the windiest. <laughs> it was like, it was like a wind event. Right. Yeah. And I was like, no, not really. I mean, <laughs> they didn't really mention the wind. So I thought she was joking when she said that, but they didn't mention a lot, did they? No. I mean, there was one spot where, um, you know, there's a a recent horror film that's set in the desert called The Wind. Really? Uh-huh. And, um, I mean, it's a psychological, spiritual sort of horror. It's not like a gross horror. And there was one it part. It is like psychological horror when it yeah. gets, you yeah. know, yeah. won't <laughs> It's like you're in the eye of the storm. And it, it speaks to you, yeah. Um, and I remember writing down something. I was like, oh, the wind. Um, there, it was a quote. It wasn't, it was somebody quoting. It was towards the end, I feel like. And I wrote down, So, but it was just once, just once. There was a lot of talk about sagebrush um, and the scent of sagebrush, which, I mean, I think as a transplant, that is one of the first things you notice that that sort of, smell i mean it smells like soup (laughs) you know it's got that beautiful sort of herby wonderful smell that you don't have and they talk about um the little boy um talking about how it smells like rain (laughs) the desert smells like rain and that was so beautiful um and then you know we just passed it by yeah because there's that other moment in the other essay where they uh they they splash water on the adobe to mm-hmm. smell the adobe and to smell the mm-hmm. smell of the, the earth and the clay and the and the desert. Yeah, I'm a little distracted by the wind, and I'm so glad that you brought that up <laughs> because I will say we're just on the other side of um, real the really heavy duty spring winds that hit in you know where I'm from and um. And there's sort of a twofold thing. There's the 
anticipation because people know that it's coming. It's spring. It's going to be windy. And different people have different life experiences of what the, the kind of power the wind has. But over time, it's it's it, it's a psychological undoing. Um, and, and people can really literally go out of their minds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember being out in um, Desert Hot Springs, so not too far from Palm Springs one time. And it had been blowing and blowing. And it was early summer and it was still blowing. And um, the woman who ran the little place where we were staying you know, was just like, I, I need to get out of here. Like I'm trying to find somebody who will come and take pl- care of the place for, you know, a couple of weeks because I've got to get out of here. And I thought, isn't this fascinating? Part of it is a wind blowing through the non-Indigenous mm-hmm. palm trees yeah. or around her property. Yeah. And the constant like swaying and sound of the palm trees creaking. Yeah. And then the fronds falling. I was like, oh my gosh, you have like, you have both the the desert wind and you have this man-made imposition of something that doesn't belong, just making the desert wind that much harder. Yeah. There's no story really about the wind. No. There was just one, one brief moment. And yeah, it is something, I mean, when you listen to recordings from the desert, you know, animal recordings, bug recordings, whatever, you can't get away from the wind, no matter how good your mic is. (laughs) (laughs) you're gonna have wind i was just thinking about the and this is gonna i'm gonna do what these guys did that i'm making that i'm making fun of them for but when you experience the desert and you don't know what to expect it's always the the weather right that surprises you so we all used to trek out to the desert you know now like 20 years ago to go to burning man right and so starting in about 1999, I think, is the first year I went. And then we went a couple times more. And you have all these kids coming from the Bay Area. And I guess all over the country. But at that time, it was the Bay Area. <laughs> they don't expect cold. <laughs> and, you're, you know, you bring, it's really hot, right? It's like 112 or whatever. And then the nighttime comes and it is absolutely freezing. And it is torrential downpour. So that when you pick up your foot, you have like six feet of, or six inches of, mud attached to your feet and this is just the experience of being in the middle of the desert and having no there's absolutely it's so flat you can see the curve of the earth right there's absolutely nothing out there so I do think it's important that they noted the contradictions right of what you expect versus what you find because I guess if you've never experienced it it can be really a a shock to the system yeah it's true it's what um you know, the joke, once you've lived in L.A. long enough that you can always tell the, the tourists because they're the only people in shorts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Yeah, because we're all prepared for when it gets cooler. <laughs> it's getting and that, and It's not like that on the East Coast, right? When you go out in the summer, you don't have to take a sweater. And that's totally different for someone who was born here to go out there. You really don't have to bring a sweater in August. You really don't. Unless you're going inside. <laughs> <It's staying laughs> and the air conditioning is so <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. The other thing, I think this sort of speaks to Burning Man, too, is that, um, you know, there were only, I think, two poems, maybe three. Um, I didn't really think they were great poems. Sorry. Sorry, poetry writers. But um, there's so much great poetry written about and for and to the desert. And I wanted more of that. And different kinds of art too. I mean, you know, we got the murals, which I think are really, really important. And I think there was a lot in that chapter. I mean, I feel like you could have taken that chapter and and made it its own book and it would have been, you know, not a thing about desert nature, but 
very, very cool. But, you know, like, these are ecologists talking about, they were illustrators, you know, and you're talking about sagebrush and no beautiful pictures, no drawings, no illustrations. That really seemed to be missing, you know, the, the actual plants and animals, just a visualization seemed to be missing. And I think that's why I really liked the murals at the end, because, you know, you could see agave, you know, and the different shades of green, blue that you get. Um, And I think it's only in that last chapter that, you know, he really talks about how the, you know, there's the green from, you know, his childhood and there are greens from the desert, you know, and it's so true. (laughs) It's so there's so many different gray greens and blue greens and and the one where he tells you to take the paint chip of what you think is the desert and then actually take it to the desert that was a good one yeah i would like to see these drawings right i mean even after 10 years of being here and trying to to learn the plant life and what bugs we should have i mean i'm still looking up what is indigenous and and what we've brought in you know it's still really, really hard. There's a lot of things that look a lot alike. And, but yeah, I don't know. It just felt like it was not complete, this book. Yeah. Particularly, and I think this is why I feel like it was sort of stuck in that sort of mysticism, spirituality, 50s, 60s, hippie, um, is that we didn't get a really important part of ecology today, urban planning today, everything is this the the idea of restoration uh-huh. and sort of undoing the damage that settlers did to the land cuz that's hugely important and vital to a lot of different communities across all of the deserts even here in Los Angeles on the edge of a desert yeah it was just a sprinkle here and there like a toe in the water towards yeah i mean water water <laughs> <laughs> i feel like if you didn't know <laughs> a lot about um, the West at all. I feel like we're sort of losing where the water comes from and goes. And, you know, it it was sprinkled throughout about plants and, you know, which different plants will bring the water up during the night so that other plants. Diagrams, I mean, I just wanted more sort of inclusion. I wanted, I wanted more. Well, and, and doesn't the initial essay, I mean, at least for me, it, it felt like it was part of what it tempted to do was talk about, you know, like mutualism, talk about what what is exclusive to its own entity, what actually is this mutual community building that's built, um, I think in the chapter um, on the mural, the, the essayist talks about the, the triad of the um, it's the Swaro and the, I'm looking at the wrong little piece, the triad of the Swaro, uh, the uh, Brissage, and I think it was um, also maybe the Palo Verde tree. And how noting that you don't really see all three of them in most depictions of the desert, and yet they are so harmonious that you you can't actually have one without the other in, in real you know, in our real lives. And I, so I, I think there were, there were many times where I was like, oh, is this concept of working mutually or existing mutually going to show up again? 
And it would sort of like, again, sort of peep up a little bit here and there. But I thought also in terms of, as you were posing at the very beginning, Aubrey, when we think about community and we think about urban planning and we think about restoration, I was, I was so also hungry for a discussion of mutual benefit, mutual, the competition, you know, that, that one might not survive making sure that the other grows. And what does that mean for us as humans? in and around a desert. I was, I was like, oh, here it is. It's showing a little piece of it showing up at the tail end as we're talking about murals. And I'm like, oh yeah, I really wanted some of this. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, he talks about the sort of history within ecology that, you know, there was the the theory of sort of communitarianism, if we're going to talk in sort of governance terms, right? And um, the sort of individual social Darwinist sort of uh, struggle and that, you know, for most of the 20th century, that sort of individualistic theory, you know, led ecology and environmental studies. And, you know, as we're going back and learning more, we're learning more and realizing that it's much more complex and much more connected than we think. And it's not just the plants, it's the microbiome that is underneath the ground that you can't see, you know, and I I found it really interesting because how that also paralleled our sort of politics um, throughout the 20th century and how it colored the way the people were viewing themselves in the desert And yet there was not really like a meta, you know, really thinking about it, even though that's what the title is. (laughs) So it was this frustration because it was hinted at and then not really addressed, um, which I think also makes me feel like it's just not a contemporary book. It doesn't feel contemporary. It feels nostalgic. Oh, that's a good word. I couldn't agree more. It's funny that you say that because I was somewhat surprised whenever I would get a a reference um, about um, the most recent president, right? I was like, oh, wow, someone just wrote this the other day. Like this Mm -hmm. is, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it was literally within the last two years that somebody wrote this. And, um, but there's definitely no, um, certainly no discussion of sustainability or equity and that is sort of all any of us are thinking about right now, or all mm-hmm. I'm thinking about. And it was really absent. And, you know, and I think that's why um, the chapters written by um, Indigenous folks are the mm-hmm. because those are, or in my opinion, those were the best ones. Um, in addition to the, the Border Patrol agent, because he comes around and he reckons with mm-hmm. what our government policies are doing to actual human lives in a way that none of the other authors, it was not about that. It wasn't about anything other than their, um, their spiritual awakening. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Um, I highly recommend the line becomes a river. It's um, he's a fantastic writer. Um, and he asks some of the really big questions that we don't have answers to, you know, how do you transform institutions? And um I thought it was interesting because a lot of these people are connected to an institution, which I believe is at University of Arizona. And I found it interesting that they all knew each other. They were all friends. They were all similar. And um, there wasn't a lot of reaching reaching out, which also just strikes me as like the opposite of what deserts are. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> I, you know... And maybe this is, you know, talking about the wind, like there's this way that the desert sort of reaches out and like tries to make you a part of it, you know, 
in this a similar but very different way that like when you're in a like really dense old wood forest that it reaches out to to make you part of it you know you're in the leaves you're you know the branches are are getting you i think you were talking about that with the the jumping cacti you know yeah it doesn't um you know like when you live by the ocean um which i don't live close enough for this to be um, but if you live real close to the ocean it um it disintegrates all of your belongings right so those condos and apartments right by the ocean that look real nice they're basically crumbling right because mm-hmm. the water is constantly disintegrating them you know mm-hmm. and, um i i think the desert is i mean stacy you tell us it's probably likely the same right it would be very hard to keep things nice outside if you live in the desert right because it is constantly reclaiming mm-hmm. own um mm-hmm. yeah the yeah dust. and the the parts of a city like albuquerque that are built up that have green grasses you know things like that it's like i think someone in in here talks about you know the desert has taught me patience that what was built one grain of sand at a time is also being taken away one grain of sand at a time and um, so, yeah. All right. So I want to throw out some words that I kept seeing a lot. And I want to know what you think. So the words that I wrote down, because I've read them a lot. Silence. Openness. Darkness. Spaciousness. Sensuality. Borders. Duality. What do you think is missing? <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say what was missing, um, right, even before you said this, Aubrey, I had written down what's missing for me. Um, two things were, um, like, uh, definitions, right? So mm-hmm. what desert, like, what are we actually referring to, which we've started kind of circled around, mm-hmm. and also names, like names for the desert. Like, I saw the word playa come up only once in a while, where that is in, in 100% how I think about the desert, and it could just be because of Burning Man. But may, like how people name things in the desert, I thought was missing specifically how people name things, not um, how people describe things. So that was something I thought was missing. Yeah, that's really great. Mm. So for me, there were a few places where they would sort of put the ocean and ocean type words on one hand and the desert on the other and the sort of similarity you know, because I think when you go during the day, <laughs> you can be surrounded by heat in that way that when you walk into the ocean, you're surrounded by water. The heat, the sort of baking, the warmth, the way the sun is different. The sun is different. The slants of light are different. Any, you know, all places. But, you know, when you're in a particular desert, you know, it's going to have that its own particular light and brightness. And that's another thing, you know, particularly with the the men who were sort of the mystics, you know, they, they really focused on this sort of darkness, hollowness, um, and they seem to revel in it. And yet, like, I don't, I mean, you need dark and light, but, you know, why are you reveling so much in, in one? The fact that you have these warm days and the cool evenings and sometimes downright cold evenings and the up and down. And it's just so alive in a way um, and doesn't feel hollow. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there, I, I was going to say like the cell and the cave are like the other kind of images that keep coming out. Mm-hmm. 
up throughout. Mm-hmm. We talk about like the dark and the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the sort of solitary experience. And yeah, and I think too, I, there are just so many things that come to mind. I think it's such a, a great question and not one that I, I was even the least bit prepared to, to ponder <laughs> or answer. <laughs> and that's what I think is so great about it. Um, but I would say that I think the things that are missing are um, like food and sustenance, mm-hmm. not just water, uh, but sustenance, like in its most richest kind of exploration of it. Um, I don't think that you actually really, you know, again, it's mentioned just briefly, you know, that the, the desert's a really amazing place if you can, if you can find shade <laughs> and maybe some water. Uh, which is very true. I I love the desert, but I am not kidding myself when I know that I can walk into a room, whether or not it has air conditioning, at least has shade. And there's, you know, cool water in that space outside of the sun. Um, But I don't think you really, that one survives the desert alone. Mm -hmm. So all that, like, I'm a solo being, and I'm in the cell, I'm in this cave, and I'm in this experience by myself. I think the desert is... So completely the opposite of that, mm-hmm. that, yeah, that, that is, that's definitely missing. Um, and I also think a, a granular view, a very like microscopic view is missing from this as well. So there's a notion of like, oh, the mountains were once islands and the desert was ocean. Well, great. I, I get it. Um, and I think that a lot of people reading this material would need the kind of the having those things in tandem because more people know of water and rain and green and need that to get to these descriptions of the desert. But the desert wasn't only just a place that used to have water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so, yeah, I, I just generally felt like, you know, that that was missing. Like what if you are then by yourself you you're probably actually not there by yourself altogether. In other words, you are in a monastery. You are some place with people around you, and there is food somehow coming to you, and there are places for you to escape to, um, to do these explorations. But what if one of the stories was, you know, your feet on the ground and you're six inches from the next person walking with you, but your experience is your experience, but within this collective. Yeah. You have no business out in the desert by yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Like I'm going to cross the Sultan sea or I'm going to cross, you know, death Valley. Like, like I'm like out of all the things to do on the planet. I just don't get like, you need to try to beat the desert. Like, no, (laughs) I don't see. Yeah. And then I think another thing that was missing, um, that I thought I was going to get something of because um, I, it was very romantic, right? The desert is really romantic in this book and uh, romanticized and um, building up what you're saying, Stacey, like you can't, it's not a place that one can thrive on their own. You know, um, there, when I think of the desert too, and I think of the people who live there, I think of very isolated um, um, high poverty areas, right? So, you know, um, driving to, Burning Man, you drive through native um, reservations, right? And these folks are not, there's not a lot of thriving, right? There's a lot of poverty. And um, and when I think about parts of some Southwestern um, indigenous tribes and lands that I have 
driven through and visited, um, it's not that romantic. So I think the absence of um, like any real discussion of the conditions in which people are living in those places was pretty stark. Unless I missed that, but I don't think I don't think it was even alluded to. Maybe in the last chapter about the um, the murals, talking about how they began more in uh, lower income Mexican and indigenous communities before sort of gentrifying and moving into downtown. But yeah, you know, that particular, you know, that statement about how um, in that paragraph, he, he also talks about how, you know, that, you know, mixing of cultures brings this more, uh, more creativity. And, you know, it wasn't, you know, the upsides and downsides, you know, like, I think, you know, in the beginning, Gary is talking about how you can't, that it isn't binary, right? And yet, it feels like everyone was sort of thinking about it very binary. Um, you know, it isn't just individualism, social Darwinism, or mutual aid, right? It's a bit of both, <laughs> you know, because ultimately, you know, plants, animals want to survive. And so sometimes that means, I mean, making choices, right? And in all of this, you know, sort of the human cost, I think you're you're right. Um, I think it also romanticizes indigenous cultures and also doesn't even really talk about like Native American versus Mexican indigenous and just there there's so many complexities that it just felt that it was missing. Although particularly the the actual nature in the desert felt <laughs> Yeah, I I feel a bit compelled to add that, you know, one of the things we often don't talk about, and I I think this is tied to conversations around restoration, is yes, you have indigenous people who are often not thriving the way they would want to. And they may be on a portion of the land that their people were from. Or not even close. Or not even close. And so one of the things that, again, isn't really in this book is also then if we're talking about like the micro on one hand is the expansiveness that to thrive and survive in these areas, you you kind of can't live in just a portion of it. You need a place where you can move freely as you need to. You can rest out of the sun when you need to. You can get out of the wind or you can go out when it's wet or whatever those choices are. And when we're talking about the Southwest in particular, people have been not always placed on the, the best part or the biggest and necessary part of, of land that are not. When you say that, you mean that the government often put people in. Oh, yeah. The government they didn't often. They absolutely move. did. But whoever they didn't kill, they put onto land, you know, and built actual or proverbial borders around them. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing that I felt was missing is this idea of, of borders um, or lack thereof that borders are often um these amorphous things, you know, particularly, you know, I'm thinking about LA, you know, that we're um, on this sort of border between um, the different landscapes and um, different peoples. And, um, and as, as climate change, different weather patterns and, um, you know, talking about the wind and how our patterns of 
the the winds, the Santa Anas have changed over just the last decade. And I think you really get that from Francisco Cantu's work, The Lime Becomes a River, this idea that borders don't really exist, you know? And that is something, you know, particularly since so much of it was actually, you know, about Tucson specifically, this like where, you know, a city in a desert is is this thing on its own, you know? LA is a different city than New York City because of where the place that it is and how much water you have to move and where does the water in Tucson come from? <laughs> you know, all these things that I just felt like if we're really talking about deserts, why? So, yeah, I guess we are coming towards an end. Is there something that we haven't talked about that, that you want to talk about? No, I, I just, I was just going to say that, yes, all of the things you, you just said, um, they, you know, there was barely just like a tiny little touch on, you know, again, like what copper mining did to, that, you know, to Tucson and to the surrounding areas. And um, and there really is, um, there's one moment, again, in that last essay around the, um, around the murals where there is, uh, there is one mural called Nations Divided, where the fact that there is a border mm-hmm. um, is, is depicted in a very clear way because it, Splits the Tejano people. Mm-hmm. So yes, borders aren't necessarily real, but yes, they absolutely are. And we're coming off of mm-hmm. an age where there is actually a physical thing there, and critters on either side, as well as human, you know, critters on either side in this border. And I know you've heard me say this, Aubrey. I think I brought it up um, before. You know, um, Dolores Huerta has that beautiful quote of like, you know, we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. And there's no doubt that there isn't really any of that in this book. I think that's a really good point, Stacy. Yeah. So did you like the book? <laughs> I liked parts of the book. Um, I liked the idea of the book. I liked the artifact of the book. <laughs> Um, as a whole, you know, I, I think it fails to live up to its title. And I think given where we are in 2021, I think this book lacks a lot of what a university press book should have in a um, collection of essays. I think there are not enough women, there are not enough Native voices. It feels very old Christian white dude. Yeah, I agree with you. I liked a lot of parts of it. Um, I I loved how short some of the chapters were. That always makes me happy. Fly through a book. It felt to me, and I don't want to offend anybody who wrote this book. It felt to me that somebody wanted to put a book together, and he asked his pals to jot some Mm -hmm. ideas down on paper. Mm -hmm. They would get some, maybe an honorarium of some kind, and that was it. It was not cohesive and there wasn't a lot of depth. And when there was depth, we flagged it and talked about it. But some of it was. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. I mean, I have places that I kind of flagged and stuff because I thought, oh, there's a quote or there's something. And so there was like these, as we've talked, like little breadcrumbs here and there. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure. I feel like I was building my own path and I'm not quite sure that the, the editor really thought that that's a path that they intended 
Uh, I feel now like really it should be the human nature of desert nature. Um, <laughs> Humans <laughs> and in that desert. Maybe I would have just bought into it and, and kept going um, with that point of view. Yeah. All the things that you're saying. So would you recommend the book or part of the book to anyone? I would absolutely recommend parts of the book. I, I think that in all candor, I think if you're going to pick up the whole book, skip over the first essay because it is, it, it's definitely more kind of, you know, kind of academic in tone and you can kind of dive into some of the other essays. I think that the, um, for me, I think I have a former student who we actually had conversations about a lot of these murals uh, while she was attending USC. So I actually am interested in sharing that essay with her um, and kind of get her sense Um born and raised in many generations in that part of our world. And I actually really liked falling in love, uh, the essay about the sorrows and talking to the sorrows and what the Mm -hmm. sorrows taught this person. And that I feel is like a little nugget for friends. One of the four female authors. (laughs) Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it is, is, it's hard because it's beautiful to touch and it has, yeah, there's some some things that are really terrific, but I too would be totally behind if it doesn't already exist a, a book about those murals. Yeah, and his writing I thought was um, it was good, and I, I feel like expanding some of those could really get some deep ideas to some deep issues. But yeah, I liked that essay. I really, you know, I I would recommend um, the second essay. I mean, the third essay, I guess, if you're counting. Um, Gary's opening essay. I would definitely miss skip that one. Um, I also feel like he doesn't really say very much in that particular essay. And in that way, it feels that that sort of old school academic that there's a lot of words to not have a lot of meaning. But the the fictional um, Hino, which is, you know, in that first section, it's the second essay. I think that's really beautiful, you know, and it's short. It's really short, but it's very memorable. And what strikes me too is that so many of the things that are brought up in that story are missing from the rest of the other stories. You know, and I think that's also why I keep focusing on the Christian mysticism because, you know, the the Catholicism, the crosses across the desert, you know. Um I think he says chains, chains of crosses, right? And you know, that was the missions really changed not only the people's some good ways, but a lot of negative, but also really changed the place and that it's missing in so many of the other chapters, I think is a real shame. It's a real shame. I also would recommend the Francisco Cantu essay um, that was published elsewhere. So you can get that other places and his book, um, which I think I meant to look it up, but um, those stories are part of the book. I'm not sure if it, if that particular essay is done as a whole, as a chapter in that book, or if it's just, you know, his book is is sort of um, encompassing that and, and larger. So would you recommend any of the book, Caroline? Yeah, I agree with what you've... I actually, I liked um, almost all the essays because... Um, you know, they were short, and if I didn't like it, it was over fast enough. <laughs> if you have an Airbnb in um, Palm Springs, you could leave this book there for your people who stay. 
I will tell the Airbnb I stayed at. Oh, and mark certain, certain. Yeah, like read this one. Um, yeah, I would recommend that. I, I would not read recommend the, um, the opening, you know. And I think if you just read it like a New Yorker, you know, like a couple. Yeah, of, That's it. yeah. that is a, yeah. And there are actually some, you know, I, I think Hino could be a really good chapter for, you know, urban planning classes and other policy classes, you know how things are so connected that it's not just policy that, you know, <laughs> it affects all of the living things. Did you have a favorite line or passage? I did. And it was, it's what I've been waiting to say. Yes. So he know was my favorite because I've never read anything like it. Mm. And I, um, as you know, if you've listened to this podcast before, I am Native American. And so, and, and maybe um, just because of what I said in this podcast, you may have figured that one out, but I love, <laughs> I loved it. I loved on page uh, 62. It's really sad, um, but oh, I'm going to, yeah. It talks about, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to actually just do two parts. One where he talks about basically it's from the perspective of the desert and from a long view, right? Not, not, you know, he talks about when people came 500 years ago, right? And he talks about how um, the enemies uh, came and removed the corpses and placentas that he had tried to keep safe or I had tried to keep safe under my skin. They diverted water from all the rivers, using it to irrigate crops. And he goes on to talk about the war between um, the settlers and the Indian folks. As um, the second to the last paragraph is, among the new generation of Comcac, I don't know how to say this, Comcac, were descendants of the most powerful individuals whom no one could kill. They persisted with our ways, adapted to this place, and when they left their refuges on the the island, they resettled a few places on the mainland that had been homes of their ancestors. And I thought that um, those of us who are left, who are Native American, who are left, we are the descendants of the most powerful individuals whom no one could kill. Mm, so good. <laughs> Stacey, did you have a favorite line or passage? Yeah, I had a few. Uh, and gosh, it's hard to follow that up with really anything else. Um, I will say again, you know, that I, I kind of loved the um, the section about the Soros. And if for those who are listening, if you've never been to the Soro National Park outside of Tucson, uh, go. It is one of the most remarkable things you will do. But I was also really struck. Uh, this is, again, in the uh, essay about the murals. And, and I'll preface it with a little personal story, which is I was taking a watercolor class. And I was, um, and, and, you know, there was a lesson on, you know, kind of how to paint this sky. And my sky was very pink and very yellow and very blue. Um, and it was not pastel colors at all. And I painted these other things on top of it because that was part of the lesson we were exploring. It was sort of like a little barn and a hillside or whatever. And a woman looked at it and she was like, oh my gosh, it looks like there's a fire in the background. Is that what you're saying? It's like, is there a fire? And I, and I remember thinking, no, that's how the skies look where I come from. Like, you don't need a fire for the sky to be watermelon colored. Mm -hmm. So I preface that, I say that to preface this quote, which is from Staring at the Walls. And um, he's talking about the brilliant yellows and oranges and the murals and the bright blues. And at the end of that, he says, along with life and a place to live, the creator gave them enough beauty to light up the landscape. That exact crimson is a difficult color to mix with pigments. Many artists like me have tried to paint that unpaintable light. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> so uh, this is not necessarily my favorite line, but I really like what she is talking about. Um, so this is in the essay, uh, Desert City, Ocean Home. It's the, the last paragraph. She says that she's grateful no matter what the sea threatens here on the edge of peril where we all live to know this earth story that tells me that for these moments, I belong to a gorgeously unfolding uncertainty. And I, you know, I think that gets at what I felt perhaps is missing. Um, and perhaps a theme that I'm just noticing right now is this idea that uh, humans are not okay with uncertainty. And yet we live in constant change, constant uncertainty. And so part of that figuring out how we can live together is recognizing that, you know, we, we have to be okay with uncertainty. So maybe it's okay that at the end of this, we don't have a definition of nature, <laughs> the desert nature. Uh, we don't have uh, much desert knowledge, but I think there are definitely pieces of this that are worth reading. But yeah, skip that first chapter. <laughs> um, I guess that's all we have time for today. I'm actually a little bit over. So thank you so much, Stacey and Caroline. Big thank you to our listeners. And we hope that you, our fellow book lovers, are enjoying these conversations please send us your thoughts. We would love to hear from you. If you've got a book we should read, tell us. So to find the whole suite of podcasts exploring governance and civics, search USC Bedrosian on your favorite podcast app. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our website, bedrosian.usc.edu slash book club. And again, we're reading All We Can Save, an emergent strategy for the upcoming months. So thank you again, Caroline. Thank you again, Stacy. And thanks also to our producer, Jonathan Schwartz, and a huge thanks to our beloved sound supervisors, the Brothers Hedden. Signing off, I'm Aubrey Hicks, coming to you from Southern California on the edge of a desert. Until next time, be good to yourself and your neighbors. <laughs>